Well, good morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie, if you're new here. Uh, you've caught us in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And what we've said each week is that this sermon, this, this gospel is really giving us like front row seats, a certain vantage point to see Jesus for who he truly is. And isn't that what we want? Not, not just like the cultural Jesus, not just the Jesus that fits our frameworks, but Jesus for who he truly is. Now, we just heard a passage, but the verses right before it, and I mean like verses 33 and 34, uh, Jesus picks up right before it and he says to his disciples, he says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and they are going to mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, here's why I bring this to your attention. This is the third time, three chapters in a row where Jesus predicts his own death, starting to sound like a broken record. Why does John Mark, the gospel writer, do this? The death of Jesus is not accidental or incidental, but central to Jesus's identity and purpose. It's not an accident, but central to his self-understanding and his purpose. But every time he shares this, every time he's misunderstood. Now, now listen, People who, who, who profess to follow and trust Jesus, what do we call them? We call them Christians, right? And, and that word Christian is used a little bit in the Bible, just a few times. But in the New Testament, overwhelmingly, the way to describe someone who trusts and professes uh, their trust in Jesus, the word that they use is disciple. That's the word that's used all the, all the time. And a disciple believes the words of Jesus but also emulates the way of Jesus, takes the path of Jesus. And I want us to be disciples. Wouldn't that be sweet if Denver Prez was known for being a church of disciples? But I wonder if we understand what it entails, if we're misunderstanding too. This morning, we're gonna, we're gonna see the disciples revisiting the, the question they, they always have. How do I become great? You know, as I was studying this passage, I was kind of like tired of this same topic being brought up every time until it occurred to me that there's actually something beneath the disciples sort of jockeying for power. They're, they're, they're always jockeying for greatness. I realized there's something beneath it. You know, a few years ago, I, was, uh, I heard this interview on NPR uh, and the, the interviewer was um, having a conversation with the actor Roger Moore. So if you, for you, if you don't know that name, Roger Moore was one of the many uh, different James Bond actors. You know, there's like a million of them. He was one of them. And they get, the interviewer and, and Roger Moore get to talking, and the interviewer asks him, he says, hey, like, have you ever gotten together like with the other James Bond actors, kind of like a reunion? I mean, there are quite a few of you. And he says, yes, actually we do, but not with Sean Connery. That's the one all y'all remember. Not Sean Connery. Sean Connery never shows up. And he goes on to explain that Sean Connery tries to distance himself from the James Bond role. Apparently, uh, Connery regrets 
it a little bit because he feels like it pigeonholed him. It kind of typecasted him in his career. It negatively affected his, his acting career. But Roger Moore goes on to say, he says, personally, I don't care at all if the only thing you remember me for is that I played James Bond. I just want to be remembered. Now, James, or excuse me, Roger Moore is 86 years old at the time of this interview. He's, he's since passed away. But he says, I just want to be remembered, to know that I made some impact in the world, that I matter. Now, Moore in this interview is extremely vulnerable. I wonder if he gives us all words, like he's giving us words, doesn't he? We want to matter. We want someone to remember us when we die. And not only when we die, we, like we want to matter now. Our passage here in Mark 10 speaks to this. I wonder if all of these fights for glory and for greatness among the disciples was really just a cover for this ageless desire to matter. We want to matter. So we're going to study this passage this morning with that framework in mind, and we're going to move through these, uh, through these verses. First, note takers, first by exploring uh, what it means to matter, and then we'll pivot and we'll explore the pain of mattering. So first, what it means to matter, and then the pain of actually mattering. So let's begin with what it means to matter. Now, as you read these passages in Mark, it's, it's easy to make the disciples look like caricatures, like cartoons, right? And, and I would say the gospel of Mark is especially, has a, has a very particular way of making the disciples look really bad. I mean, these disciples, they walked with Jesus, you guys. I mean, the, Jesus, the most humble person ever. How could they mess this up with Jesus as their teacher? Now, as we learned in that first verse, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, they, they might have actually been cousins with Jesus. We're not exactly sure, but we suspect they might have been cousins of Jesus. They were part of Jesus's inner circle. Now, it's kind of weird to say it like that, but sometimes James and John and Peter, they go off separately with Jesus. Uh, and these two guys ask Jesus, um, or they make they make a request that even my children know better than to ask, right? Verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, right? Like, give me a blank check, boss. Hook your boys up. We're inner circle, right? Now, listen, beware of setting the terms of your conversation with Jesus. Just a little pro tip. So he said to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, well, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Now, listen, just a few chapters earlier, we, um, you'll, if, you're, if you're here, you remember, we studied the transfiguration. So Jesus took the inner circle up on the mountain and like for a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, I'm not sure, but in that moment, Jesus looked like what he has always looked like in eternity past and what he will look like forever in eternity. I mean, Jesus radiated and he looked like the king of the universe. 
And even a divine voice speaks out of heaven and calls him my son. So when James and John saw that, they knew, they were like, I know how this ends. They knew that he would actually become the king of the earth. So, so they're, they're saying, Jesus, when you set up shop, you know, as the king of the earth, maybe even here in Jerusalem, when you set up shop, can we sit at your left and your right in authority? Now, Jesus um, speaks about what all of that means to sit on your left and right. But as he's explaining, the other 10, right, who aren't there, uh, they realize what's happening. So skip forward to verse 41. He says, it says, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, why did they become so angry? Is it because they're just so spiritually minded? Is it because they know that the kingdom of Jesus does not run on power? Is it because they know from their teacher that the kingdom is all about service and giving? And they can't believe that these dumb sons of Zebedee aren't getting it. Is that why, is that why they're upset? You know that nervous feeling that you get when someone hears something that you don't want them to hear? James and John don't. <laughs> they don't. After hearing how incensed the other 10 were, they probably grabbed Jesus, brought him back out, uh, out of earshot, and they were, like, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jesus, when you set up shop, when you're enthroned again, you know, like you could just imagine it because I have some questions. Here's the thing. All 12 of them wanted to sit in authority with greatness with Jesus. The 10 were mad because the first two got to the conversation first. Now listen, this isn't just about glory or fame. We're all looking for meaning. Listen, if your Bible, if your Bible, if the Bible was your only reference, if it was the only reference point for your own self-understanding, sure, you would learn about humility and you would learn about giving, but you would also read these words. Listen to these words from Psalm 8. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're so mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than angels, lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. This passage is about the glory that we were made for. We are made for greatness more than any other part of creation. What all the disciples are showing here is not just glory hunger. It is this unbreakably persistent and present feeling that we matter, <laughs> that our lives matter. I heard this podcast. It was two master interviewers. So the first was the one doing the interview was Cal Fussman. I don't know if you know that name. He's this award-winning writer. He's an essayist. He writes for es Esquire magazine. Incredible insights. Um, he's, Cal Fussman is one of those really gifted people who, who's really good at drawing people out, you know? 
And he's interviewing another master interviewer, Larry King. All right, so this is a few years ago. During the interview, Larry King, you know, they get to talking, he reveals that he has this vanity room in his house. Y'all know what a vanity room is? It's like one of those rooms where you put all of your accolades and accomplishments, all your trophies, um, you know, all your words would go there. If, if you have pictures with uh, cel- other celebrities and famous people, you would, you would put it in your vanity room. So you had a picture of all, you know, Larry King and every famous person you know. And so, you know, Cal Fussman is asking him about one particular award, and it's that he won the Lifetime Achievement Award. And there it was in the vanity room. So Fussman asks him about it. Turns out that Larry King really doesn't like the award. Like the Lifetime Achievement Award bothers him. He says, you know, they give you this Lifetime Award, but then there's still like Lifetime left. Like, what do you do afterwards? Like, do you just go in, accept the award, and walk straight to the cemetery? You know? Like, he's like, how does this work? So, you know, Kyle Fussman, like, seeing, like, his lack of appreciation for the Lifetime Achievement Award, kind of presses King on this. And Larry King responds. He says, the thing I fear most is death because I can't imagine not existing. It drives me bonkers. That's what he says. Now to this, like Cal Fussman, he kind of minimizes Larry King's uh, comment. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we were talking about this at breakfast. Like we are all energy. And Larry King says, I don't know what you mean by that. And Cal Fussman says, yeah, energy. That is uh, what we all are. We are all energy. So we're all going to be floating around somehow. You know, I have a feeling that you never go away. Now, you could tell from the interview, this start is, it's as unsettling for Larry King. And he kind of confronts him. He kind of confronts him. He says, I'm not there. You understand that, Fussman? He, like, he literally calls him by his last name. You understand that, Fussman? I don't exist, and that bugs me. Now, Larry King is speaking in the present tense about being dead. And like, kudos for his candor, Right? Now listen, it, it is fairly rare that someone reaches the heights of Larry King. He has an entire room in his home that is evidence that he has arrived. He made goals. He achieved them. I mean, what a life, right? But he says, not existing frightens me. In the interview, he goes on and says, he says, I don't believe in God. He doesn't say it disrespectfully. He just says it. And he says, he says, my wife does, but he doesn't. And he says, I can't get there. And he goes, and it bothers me. But then, because then it doesn't matter. Larry King's words. Because then none of this matters. At some level, God put that in him. God put that in all of us. God put eternity in our hearts. There is a glory that we were all intended for. That is what is behind all of this talk of being at Christ's right and his left. We want our lives to matter. We were made to matter. You see, let me, there's lots of impl- applications. Um, let me just make one quick application I think this gives us a really insight into why loneliness 
is so crushing. Did you know that putting people into solitary confinement in prison for an extended amount of time is now considered cruel and unusual punishment in the eyes of the law? Why is it so bad? Listen, you can be single and lonely, or you can be married and lonely, and that is a different category of pain. But in both cases, it is so painful. Why? Because deep down, you know you are supposed to matter. You want to matter, and you feel like no one sees you. And it's crushing. It's crushing. For many, you know, the season of COVID was the most painful season of their entire lives. It's why we've seen so many, so much like mental health issues. The companionship of our TV and our phones proved to make things worse as a substitute for real people. And the pain of extended isolation just proved too much. And for many, it's been hard to bounce back. God has made us to matter. And the haunting loneliness tells us that we don't matter. It lies to us. The disciples wanted to be great, but what they really wanted, what they really wanted is to know that they mattered, that their lives matter, that their work means something, that when they die, they're not just immediately forgotten. You guys, let's continue to work to be a church that looks for each other. You know, like all these picnics that we're doing and CGs, like it's not just a sideshow of fellowship. It's our way of looking at each other and, and saying we matter. Being together, it matters. You know, sometimes I say to Amanda when I'm with her, I say, Amanda, you, you make me feel like a million dollars. Valuable. You know, uh, you know um, Andy and Meg Griff, they have a little girl named Elizabeth. And she would see me on TV. And then when I first met her, she just came up to me, gave me this big hug. And she, every time she sees me, she, she's like three years old. She gives me this big, like, really warm hug. And I'm like, I feel like a million dollars, you know? Let's let our presence with one another make, make each other feel like a million dollars. You know, to pursue one another is holy. It's, it's a sacred vocation. It's not just this extra thing we do. You know, at Christmas time, we sing the song about the incarnation, that when God came into the earth, our soul felt its worth. In the same way, I wonder if we could do that for others. Do the souls of those around you feel their worth because you pursue them? We want to matter. And that's what we're starting to see in this conversation. Let's pivot for a second. So we looked at what was behind this desire to be great in the heart of the disciples, and we did that by examining what it means to matter. Now we have to ask, what's the proof of our significance that we matter, right? I mean, do we matter? I mean, we have this desire to matter, but how do we know? And, you know, warning, there's a pain in mattering, our second point. 
Now, the way that we see the world, right, it's going to inform how we answer this question, do we matter? Uh, Let me play this out for you. For instance, you guys just this week heard about the James Webb Space Telescope. Like, it's giving us pictures that... The result, that make the results of like the Hubble telescope, that's the one I knew about when I was cut, like makes those pictures just look ordinary. I mean, these pictures, if you haven't seen them, are like breathtaking. It can see images from 16 billion light years away. Not 16 billion years away, 16 billion light years away. And when your imagination kind of goes down that rabbit hole about like the greatness of the universe a kind of story emerges and it makes you feel really small. Now listen, if you only believe in the material universe, the physical world, these pictures can be haunting. The story that emerges can actually be haunting. Listen to this quote. It was a letter that was written to the New York Times. This was a few years ago, even before this, the, the, the James Webb Space Telescope. The writer says, there are 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old with many trillion stars and many more trillion inferred planets. So how significant are you? You are not special. You are just another piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing of who you are or what you do in the short time you are here will ever matter. Anything short of that realization is vanity. So, okay, that word so means he's about to draw a logical conclusion, all right? So, celebrate life and every moment admire its wonders and love people without reservation. Let me summarize the logic of the writer. Nothing you do will ever matter, so do good. Right, the conclusion doesn't logically flow. Like it's a non sequitur for those of you who like Latin and I use it to feel smart, right? It's a non sequitur, right? Like we feel like we matter, God is calling us to live lives that matter, but why? I mean, you're just going to die. I mean, does it really matter how we live? And Jesus says, yes. But there's a different logic. And so he teaches about greatness, and it includes pain. Now, as Jesus teaches about greatness, he, he very predictably reminds us again of these of this upside-down kingdom values, right? Jesus reminds us that greatness comes from being last. If you want to be great, if you want to matter, you must be last. And this is like something Jesus is saying all the time, right? I mean, Mark is constantly saying this. Why does Jesus repeat this a million times in the gospel? Well, there are things that we do as embodied humans, creatures, right? That are very counterintuitive. Things that had to be taught to us because they're not that obvious. Uh, You know how like when you have a headache, you know, there's obvious things that you do to help. Um, Maybe you're inclined to kind of rub your temples. Uh, Maybe you will sit in the dark 
Maybe you get like a, a cold, damp cloth, put it on your forehead. Maybe you take Tylenol. And those things might bring relief. But sometimes the best thing you can do for a headache is just drink several glasses of water. It's not the most obvious thing, but it's the right thing. Jesus says there are things that are not the most obvious. That's the case here. He says, here is the way to be great. Here is the way to matter. You ready? Be last. See, after James and John make their request for greatness, Jesus responds by saying, tantamount to a couple glasses of water here. He uses Old Testament imagery for suffering. Verse 38, you do not know what you're asking, right? It's counterintuitive. It's not obvious. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? And they said, yeah, like we are able. Now, what they think they're saying is, Lord, like when the time comes, we are able-bodied men who will fight at your side. But Jesus is calling them to something different, not to fight, but to be killed, to drink the cup of wrath, to share in his sufferings. Their greatness, their life mattering will be painful. That's the counterintuitive thing we must do. Now, he's not calling us to death, but it's a kind of death of, to self, isn't it? So Jesus says, verse 43, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now that word servant in the Greek is diakonos or diakonos, right? We, what word do we get in English, right? That's our, the English word is deacon. If you would be great, Jesus does not want, not even if you want to be great, if you would be great, you must be a diakonos, a slave. This is really strong language. If you want to be great, you must be the maid, the cook. If you want to be great, you must be the servant, the changer of linens, the, the sweeper of floors. Your chains show your greatness. Is this not painful? I mean, considering like our history national history. I mean, if this sounds absolutely intolerable to hear, it was worse in the first century in the Roman Empire where they actually had slaves walking around. And Jesus is somehow looking at them and extolling their greatness. You know, just to help you understand, like one New Testament commentator took a passage of Plato all right, so Plato was revered in the Greek world. He was the best philosopher and thinker of the time. This was in the water in the Greek world. He writes, how can you possibly be happy if you have to serve? That's Plato. The good life, he would say, comes from overcoming your role as the servant. And Jesus disagrees. He just flat out disagrees. 
the pagans, the powerful of the Roman Empire, enlist the wisdom of Plato, of the world. Verse 42, Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, for them, greatness is about power. It's about getting to be the boss. It's about getting your way, having the last word, winning the conversation with wit or being clever or maybe just outright force. It's about taking care of yourself first and seeing what is left over for the rest. And Jesus insists, verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And Jesus is no hypocrite. He doesn't say one thing and do another. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus here, he like, you would expect him to call himself the Messiah. That's what he was, the coming king. But he uses this title, Son of Man. And now that title actually comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. So in Daniel, he, the prophet, has this vision of God. God is, uh, is called the Ancient of Days. And so Daniel, the prophet, is describing this vision. And he says, behold, one like the Son of Man. And this figure is like shining in glory and he is given all the riches and glory and honor and dominion. And this son of man is the son of the ancient of days. And so what happens to the son of man? I mean, the son of man had the right to come to earth and to look like what he was, right? The splendid king to which all things and for which all things belong. The son of man had the right to come to earth and to be treated according to that honor. But what actually happens? The son of man becomes a servant. He shelves his rights, becomes a slave. And more than that, verse 45, he gives his own life as a ransom for many. Now, I know I'm moving towards the end of my sermon, but let me just give you a quick theology lesson. When you guys hear the word ransom, it's like uh, bad guys kidnap a, a good guy, right? They, a bad guy's still a good guy. Good guy's family pays a ransom to the bad guys to get the good guy back, right? That's what, what we think of. In this case, you know, as we think of it, it's the bad guys who are being paid the ransom, like the guilty party. That's not how they think about ransom in the Bible. Let me, let me explain to you what a ransom means in the Bible. So there's this law in Exodus 21. If you have this ox and it gets out of the pen and it gores and it kills someone, that ox will be stoned, right? It's violent. You got to put the animal down, right? You get that. However, if that ox has killed before, and if you have failed to keep that beast in its pen, and if it gets out again and it kills someone, then not only is the ox to be killed, but you should be killed too for negligence. Like your negligence resulted in the death of another person. You've, you've, 
it's tantamount to you killing someone. However, there's this concept of a ransom. If a ransom is imposed on him, he shall give the ransom as a redemption for his life. His life is being redeemed. The penalty for this negligence is death, but the offended party, the good guys, can instead impose this penalty on the guilty party, the bad guys, the offenders. And the penalty is paid by the guilty party to the good guys, right? The party that hasn't done anything wrong, okay? Are y'all following this? So imagine like a young couple just got married, deeply in love. A violent ox gets out, kills the wife. The husband takes his legal rights, but mercifully allows the guilty party to pay the penalty, to pay the ransom, thus mitigating the full penalty that he owes, right? So the husband, in this case, is extending mercy to the owner of the ox, choosing reconciliation instead of death. That's actually how the whole Old Testament sacrificial system works. You've offended God, just justly deserving his displeasure. But what does God do? He mitigates the penalty for sin by imposing the penalty of an animal's life for you. So imagine the husband whose precious wife was violently killed. Not only does he offer a ransom of peace and reconciliation, but he also offers the money to pay the ransom. He both pays and receives the penalty for this person's offense. If you get that, now you're understanding the ransom of Christ, what we're talking about here in Mark 10. God looks at our offense, like we're the guilty party. He accepts the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf as a ransom. He does, and, and does not simply pay the fine, the mitigated penalty, but rather pays the full penalty, the full debt for us. We're the guilty party. God is the offended party, and yet he accepts payment and actually gives the money for the redemption himself. How much does God love you? What proof do you have that you matter? He accepts and pays the penalty that you owe on your behalf. Christ's death is proof that you matter. That is a secure foundation that we can step out into a life of service from, right? It's a secure foundation that what you do matters. Jesus saw this, him being a ransom, as his greatest glory. There is a pain to mattering, but it was his greatest glory. And how do I know this? How do I know this? And, and you've got to see this one last detail, and this is my conclusion. John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, he records that James and John asked to be on Jesus' right and on his left. You all see that in verse 36? You see that? And then Jesus repeats that exact language again of being on his right and in his left in glory in verse 40, right? Here's what I want you to see. That exact phrase is only used one other time in the book of Mark. And John Mark is doing this on purpose. He is setting you up. Listen to this. 
This is what he's setting us up for in John, or excuse me, in Mark 15. And they crucified him between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The throne of greatness that Jesus was expecting was a cross. The cross like would be his like moment of greatness. It would be the fulfillment of his purpose, his self-understanding. He would be hoisted up in greatness as they nailed him to a cross and he's lifted up upward on a cross where he would hang. Jesus sees his action of ransom as his greatest glory. Jesus ransomed you. And it's eternal. And it's what makes you secure to live a life of meaning, a life of greatness, which means a life of service. The cross means that he sees you and that you do matter. And it's declared in a way so that you'll never forget. And every Sunday, every Sunday, I'm like going to stand up here and I'm going to shove this down your throat until you believe it. Only Christians talk like this. And I want you to believe it. You've been ransomed. And therefore, greatness looks much different for us. Amen. Amen.